And for everybody else, how's everybody doing? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Um, I was nature watching for a little while this week, and I happened to stumble across a squirrel um, that had a, had a mission, and that squirrel was trying to get to a place. Um, not sure exactly what he had going on. I think he probably had found a few, few items that he was going to be uh, eating later on, and he was going back and forth and, and pulling things, and then he would go back to his spot, uh, go back to the original spot, pull something, drop it off, go back, to, go back to the spot that he left, pull something, and then go and drop that off again. And so I was just watching him go and pull, go and pull, go and pull, and drop off and drop off and drop off. And one of the things I noticed as he was going and pulling and dropping off that he had this sticker bush that was um, between him and his drop-off spot. And I've touched that sticker bush before. It's not pleasant. And I don't think the squirrel has some secret shell that I'm aware of. But every single time he went through the sticker bush and just burrowed himself through it until it was a, it was a momentary, momentary um, or moment of pain and then he would bury inside into the sticker bush and then get to the drop-off spot, which was underneath the sticker bush, and then he would drop his stuff off. And then you see him come back up out, and there would be a momentary pain at the top of that sticker bush, of course, because he has to hit those stickers as on his way out. But he had a mission. Because he had a mission, he was willing to endure this, this temporary moment of pain that he was experiencing in order to get, in order to, get to his drop-off point, in order to get back to the spot that he needed to be. He did that continuously over and over and over and over and over again because there was a, because that's where he had to be. You know, I thought about that as I, as I watched him because, and even as I reflect on it now, I mean, he could have just stopped and just like, you know, I'll just pick another drop-off spot, right? But he just kept going because that was his point. That was his drop-off point. So he kept going through that momentary pain in order to get to that drop-off spot and in order to get back to pick up more goods to take to the drop-off spot. You know, I, I bring that story up because this morning is, is, is a lot about going through a momentary or a moment of pain in order to fulfill mission. You know, Matt, read, Matt read to you a section that we're going to brush really, really fast through. We're going to spend most of our time in the very early sections of Acts chapter 21. And then there's going to be the moment where the moment that Matt reads about, which is the moment that Paul has been working towards. He's trying to get to this point, the point that Matt just read to you guys. But there's all sorts of sticker bushes that he has to go through in order to get to this point. And then, and also in order to continue the mission, which goes on past 21 through 22 and on and onward. But I want to just talk a little bit about, I want to deal with some of the things that happens before that. And I want to deal with the reality of pain because that's a reality that we all have to experience. That, that, that God has called us on mission, but, but God, as we talked about last week, God does not call us on mission without pain. That the scripture assures us that through many trials and tribulations, we will enter into the kingdom of God. And so through pain, we will enter into the kingdom of God. That's what trials and tribulations mean. I know, I know we don't like that. I know some of us would like to think that trials and tribulations just mean kind of, sort of discomfort, maybe a little uncomfortable. But no, that it really means pain. 
and that we'll have to endure through the pain in order to go through and to reach the kingdom, in order to get to our drop-off spot. So I, I want to I wanna just talk a little bit about that. Well, it, start, it starts with this, this, this journey that, that, he, that Paul is continuing back to Jerusalem. And we, last week we talked about the Ephesian elders, and the Ephesian elders met with Paul. And, and, and in meeting with Paul, Paul shares with them this harsh reality that he's going, he's going back to Jerusalem, and he's not coming back. He says that, that, the, that the one thing I know, that the, the, the two things I know, is that the Spirit has called me to go. I gotta go. And the other thing I know is that what awaits me is imprisonment, persecution, suffering, trials, and tribulation. He says, but I gotta go. And so he leaves them. In hugs and tears and kisses, he leaves and he begins this, he continues this journey back home to Jerusalem. And we pick up in chapter 21. And in chapter 21, Paul and his band of missionaries um, that he's traveling with, they are making their way back to Jerusalem. And as we mentioned last week, Paul was collecting an offering as he traveled from church to church for the Jerusalem church who had hit hard times. Poverty was was ratcheting up in the area and in the church, and it had impacted them in a significant way. And so Paul was collecting offerings from all of the Gentile churches that had been established through his labors and the labors of others. And Paul felt it important that he be part of the deliverance of that offering. One of the reasons why is because Paul wanted to testify the great work that God was doing amongst the Gentiles. The other reason is that Paul wanted to be, uh, wanted to offer encouragement as he had offered through all the other churches along the way. He wanted to offer the encouragement to Jerusalem by showing them that God was doing such a tremendous work that they now had forged unity with a people that they once had no unity with, the Gentile people. So much so that these people who they once had no commonality with were pouring, emptying their pockets in order to pour into their need. And we pick up in, we, 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 or rather, we also know, like I said, that Paul says, I have to go. Verse 20, uh, 22 of chapter 20, Paul says this, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul and his team, they, they move through several cities before they make their first major stop in chapter 21. In the, city, in, in the city of Tyre, and the ship in which they are riding takes seven days in this city. So what do you think Paul and his team spent their time doing in the city? Verse 3, when he had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, and for, for there the ship was to unload his cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there. For seven days, we sought out the disciples. They have seven days. What do they do with their seven-day stay? They seek out the disciples. Do they look for entertainment first? No. Do they look for a nice place to eat first? No. Do they look for some tickets to a ball game first? No, because they didn't have tickets to ball games. But they wouldn't have looked for them anyway. What does Paul and his missionary team actually look for 
They look for the saints. They look for the church. They look for the people of God. They look for the family of God. And this, in some small ways, tells you a lot about what we need to know in terms of how we view the family of God now versus how they viewed the family of God then. While many of us would plan to look for a million other things upon our arrival to a city, Paul and his team are looking for Christians. And I think we have a number of possibilities as to why, but there's a few I just want to highlight. One is they understood the truth about our union in Christ meant that we enjoy union with one another. Union in Christ means that we enjoy union with one another. They understood the essence of what it means to be called the body of Christ and treated it with great care. But also, the realities surrounding persecution made them more eager to receive and give encouragement to the body of Christ. See, when persecution is real, you're always looking for camaraderie. When suffering is real, you're always looking to encourage and be encouraged by the presence of fellow sufferers. Paul and his camp were familiar with the realities of persecution. They were familiar with the realities of being the only ones in a place. And so from place to place, every opportunity they had to connect with the people of God, they sought to connect with the people of God. I had an interesting conversation with one Jim Redwine last week, a dear brother who comes to our church and who's on vacation with his lovely bride this week. And we had this conversation last week around the subject of community, and he brought up a very, very good point that sociologists and other academics have observed when discussing the concepts of community. Jim is very well-traveled, as we know. And so the, and, and as, and in his travels, the one thing that he observed that he mentioned to me and that sociologists also would affirm is that, that, that there is a, dis, a disproportionate relationship between pos, prosperity and community. In other words, the, what, what I mean is that the more comfort we experience, the less community we seek. In struggle, we bundle and huddle, right? We get our goods together and we get people together and we find ways and we find common need and we, and we, and we, and we, and we just huddle together and we build together and we are more, and, and we're less apt to build walls. But the more prosperity, the more isolated we become. We become too busy to spend time. We become too wealthy. And in our wealth, we have options not to spend time with you, right? Got things to do. But discomfort and struggle has a way of tightening those loose bonds. So Paul and his missionary family get off the ship and look for saints. And make no mistake, they have to actually search for the saints because this is, this footprint is not probably not well established here entire. But we do know that there are saints here in this city. Most likely saints that grew out of persecution in Acts chapter 11. But here's the great irony that we find in, in, in Paul looking for these saints is that 
if you remember these people, these, these saints that, that, that Paul is looking for and searching for, many of them are probably here as a result of Stephen's persecution, which means that they were probably there as a result of the persecution that Paul affirmed. So many of these people that Paul is searching out, at one point he would have been looking for them to kill them or to put them in jail. And now he is looking for them to wrap his arms around them in love and encouragement. Our union in Christ grants those who were once fierce enemies the ability to be beloved family. Our union in Christ grants those who were once fierce enemies the ability to be beloved family. See, this is a, this is an, a, Uh, This is a group of people who would have been running from Paul years ago, but now Paul is looking for them and they embrace him when he is found, when they are found. Verse four highlights um, this this very important point, uh, a very important point that we'll get to in a second, but let's just move on to verse five. It says, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. And said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Pay close attention to the love that is deeply felt in the course of seven days. Seven days. And such a deep connection is forged in this moment. Seven days. What binds them? The Savior does. The Savior that died for them binds them. So even though they had to look for this group, and they probably don't know this group very well, and, 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 and this group doesn't know them very well. In those seven days, they forge an incomparable bond. And they hate to see one another leave as they prepare, as Paul and his camp prepares to move on. They are connected to one another because they are connected to the one who died for them and rose for them. Like you and I are connected to the one who died for us and rose for us. Therefore, we are connected to one another and we enjoy the same type of unity, not only with one another, but we enjoy the same type of unity with all the saints scattered all around the world. The unity that we enjoy with one another is more deeply manifested the more we realize our union in Christ. See, whenever we find ourselves more enthused to find people who are connected to us by hobby or connected to us by sports or connected to us by politics or connected to us by nationality or connected to us by ethnicity, we have to be willing to at least challenge the possibility that our enthusiasm may exist because we hold those things in higher regard than our union to our Savior. Are you tracking with that? You have to at least be willing to challenge that the reason why you're so much more enthused to be united around all these other things than united around Christ is because those other things have a higher precedence in our hearts. When you move to verse 7, they're moving from Tyre where, where, unit, where they see this unity forged into, into seeing prophetic utterances being made in Caesarea. And in, in, verse, in verse 7 it says, when, when he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Polemus, Polemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed. 
and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied while we were staying for many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So Philip has these four daughters who prophesy. Agabus comes down from Judea, and he prophesies. Philip, if you're not familiar with Philip, Philip is one of the first deacons. That's okay, y'all. Y'all can just hum along. Amen. <laughs> Philip, Philip was one of the first deacons appointed by the church back in, back in Acts, Acts chapter 6. In chapter 8, we see Philip begin to evangelize and, sh- and show his gift as an evangelist, going from place to place, city to city, preaching the gospel, even being carried up by God at one point and dropped in another spot. And then Philip continues on the journey until he lands where? Here, in the spot that we're reading about years and years later. And so apparently Philip, when he lands here, he begins to build residence, make residence here. And this is where he ends up staying. He has four daughters, and those four daughters are prophetic. And he has this man who has come down from Judea. And he himself is sharing prophetic words as well. Now, this is the most, one of the most significant points in, in this visit or in these trips. Throughout this entire journey, what we're about to read is probably the mo- one of the most significant points about the journey. In verse 11, it says, In coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him. This is Luke speaking as as one who is with Paul in this moment. He says, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. If you recall, it's the same thing we read in chapter 4 in the, in, the, in the city of Tyre. It says, and having sought out disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So in Tyre, he hears, don't go. And now, in Assyria, he hears, don't go. But he not only hears, don't go, he hears, don't go by the Spirit. These people are receiving prophetic utterances from the Spirit that's showing them Paul's outcome. And so they're saying, don't go. He was met by the Ephesian pastors, and they wept. And I'm sure in that weeping, they pled with God or pled with Paul. Do you have to go in light of what's ahead, in light of the pain that you have to suffer But note Paul's response in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. If it sounds familiar, it's because it's pretty much the same response he gave the Ephesian elders in chapter 20. Again, chapter 20, verse 22. Listen, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
As Paul marched closer to Jerusalem, the Spirit was warning the saints about Paul's suffering, about the upcoming harm. But as Paul was marching closer to Jerusalem, the Spirit was also constraining Paul, burdening him in such a way where he says, I have to go. So the question is, was the Spirit really speaking in both situations? Was, in fact, Paul maybe disobeying the Spirit? All of these Spirit-filled believers are telling Paul, don't go because there is suffering waiting for you on the other side of this. And Paul is saying, I have to go because the same Spirit that showed you my suffering is the Spirit that's telling me I have to go through the suffering in order to get to where I'm supposed to be. Is Paul being disobedient in a word? No. Question is why? How do we know that? We know it for a few reasons. When you look at verse 11 of chapter 23, we see that God verifies Paul's obedience. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take care for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also, or so you must testify also in Rome. Take care. You testified in Jerusalem and there's suffering here. Now you're going to Rome. There's suffering there. Take courage, rather. For as you have testified to the facts here, you have to testify there. Be courageous. I'll be with you. Paul's conscience is also verification. God verifies. Paul's conscience verifies. In 23 verse, chapter 23, verse 1, Paul says, in looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. Paul doesn't have any regrets, even as he is standing before, uh, the tri, the tribunal and, or, or the, tri, uh, or the committee, so to speak, the, 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 the council under trial. Paul is saying, I got no regrets in being here. I'm supposed to be here. Whatever, whatever punishment you divvy out, no regrets. I'm supposed to be exactly where I am. So what is actually happening in this moment? What's happening right now as we read this, this tension, so to speak, between the Spirit saying, no, because I, because I see the suffering, and the Spirit saying, yes, you must go through the suffering. Here's what's happening. The people that are, that are saying no, They aren't saying what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit didn't show them the no. The Spirit showed them the suffering. See, the saints around Paul are accurately shown his suffering by the Spirit. But Paul is shown something more significant. Paul is shown the suffering, but then he's shown a glimpse of the glory of Christ in the suffering. Paul has shown the suffering, but then he's shown the glory of advancing, serving in the advancement of the kingdom in the midst of the suffering. See, when we catch a true glimpse of the glory in advancing God's mission and kingdom, we will be compelled and constrained to press through the threats of discomfort and persecution and suffering. Let me just lean into this a little bit more. Let me, let me lean into that, what I just said, a little bit more for you. If you are waiting for the mission to get easy before you invest your life fully to it, pay attention to Paul's example. Because the mission isn't getting easier for Paul. 
See, we must pray not simply for the mission to get easier, but we must pray for the, for our vision for the glory of Christ revealed in the mission to get clearer. We must pray for the vision that we have for the glory of Jesus to get so clear that now we can look past the suffering, past the discomfort, past the inconveniences to the fulfillment of God's call for our lives. See, if our vision is blurred by worldly concerns, the mission will never be easy enough. If your vision is blurred, you will always be making excuses for why you're not doing what God has called you to do. If your vision is locked on worldly concerns, you will always have a reason for not doing what God has called you to do. There will always be another job. There will always be not enough time. There will always be not enough money. There will always be too much fatigue. There will always be this, or there will always be that, or there will always be this, or there will always be that. There will always be excuses for not doing what God has called you to do. But family, the, the problem is not ease. The problem is blurred vision. Your vision is cloudy. You don't see Jesus for who he is. Paul is undeterred because his vision of Christ is clear. He sees Christ for who he is. He sees Christ as the word. Word made flesh who came and dwelt among men. He sees Christ as the one that was born of a virgin. He sees Christ as the one that, that lived a perfect life, who went about his way and doing only good and all good, all the time. He sees Christ as the one who, who though he was innocent, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle, he, he, he took it upon himself to go to the cross on the behalf of all of us sinners. He sees Christ as the one who hung and who bled, and who died. He sees Christ as the one that though he was king of the universe, was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he sees Christ as the one who rose out of that borrowed tomb in three days, demonstrating all power in his hand. And he sees Christ as the one who walks the earth for a number of days, a number of weeks. And he sees Christ as the one who leaves the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And then he sees that same Christ um, ascending into the heavens. And then he sees that same Christ sitting at the right-hand side of God, interceding for us continually, though we are sinful and wretched and we fall every single day. He makes intercession and provision for our sins. He sees that Christ. And when he sees that Christ, then he says to himself, I'll take a few sticks through the bush. I'll take a few sticks through the bush in order to fulfill the mission that he's assigned me. I'll take the persecution, though it may come, in order to fulfill the mission that he's assigned me. I'll be discomfort. I'll, I'll, I'll be inconvenienced because my vision is clear. Hmm. 
In verse 14 through 16, we hear that, that his brothers and sisters understand as well because they say in verse 14 through 16, since we, he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these things, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manansen, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Not only do they say, let the Lord's will be done, a few of them say, we'll go with you. Paul goes, and as Matt read to us this morning, he goes, and, he, and, and we see exactly what, what, we, what we expected to see. In, verse, in verses 17 onward, we, we see that, that, for example, that Paul visits James. He encourages the saints with the stories of what God is doing throughout the world, what Christ is doing in bringing a people to himself. James is encouraged. The Gentiles are, I mean, the the, the fellow brothers are encouraged. But then they, they remind Paul that there's a group of people who won't be so encouraged. There's a group of people, a group of Jewish brothers that are, that are here, that, that, that are hearing that you're teaching people to be dishonorable towards the law of Moses. And, and so they find, they, they, they devise a plan to, to show that, the, to create a good faith effort, so to speak, or to present a good faith effort. You know, so they take the four, uh, the four Jewish brothers that are, that are here in company with Paul, and they say, hey, take a Nazarite vow, shave your heads, show that you are serious about the laws of Moses. Show that you are serious about upholding and preserving our customs. Because, folks, just because we're about, just because we know the suffering may be on the other side doesn't mean that we don't plan to try to, 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 to plan to minimize it. Do you understand? We aren't gluttons for punishment. I need you to understand that, right? This isn't, this isn't, you know, when we talk about, when we talk about being willing to see clearly the vision of Christ and letting that clear vision guide you through the suffering, it doesn't mean that you are gluttonous or kamikaze towards punishment. Does that make sense? And so if you're suffering in your body, you take your medicine, in other words. You don't say, well, I just, I'm supposed to suffer. No, you take your medicine. And if you realize that you are struggling mentally, as it relates to either burnout or, or just mental issues, then you go see who you need to see, whether it be your pastor, whether it be your, uh, a counselor, a therapist. You get help. You don't suffer just for the sake of suffering. But the point being, notice what happens. James prepares them, and they go. And then the people, the Jewish people, that are threatening harm, they see them. In verse 27, it says, when seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So these are people that Paul has dealt with all throughout the book of Acts. And they find their way back into his picture again, creating and stirring up trouble 
Verse 28 saying, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, notice Paul didn't bring him into the temple. They just saw him with Paul, so they made the accusation that Paul brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, the cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul and the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And the two things that he was expecting, the two things that the Spirit had testified to him, They happen exactly the way they were testified. He goes and he encourages the saints about the things that God is doing in the the Gentile world. He goes and he encourages the saints about, 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 uh, with the offering that God has prepared through all of the Gentile churches. And not a week passes before that encouragement moves to suffering. And the belt that was prophesied or or the belt that was wrapped around his wrist in prophecy from Agabus is fulfilled when chains are wrapped around his wrist now. He's beaten just as the Spirit testified that he would be. You say, well, man, what good is that? To, To what purpose is Paul serving? But you missed the point. Paul tells you to what purpose he's serving and what purpose he's doing this. He's told you several times why he's doing what he's doing. He said, remember, what are you doing in verse 13? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul doesn't count this life. Because this is not his only life. Paul doesn't count this life because there's a life to come. And so he's willing to push through the suffering of this life. In order to fulfill all the purposes that God has for him in this life. So that he might, with clear conscience, enter into the next. Are you tracking with that? See, we're not saved by our works, and I don't want you to walk away from this thinking that somehow or another Paul is redeemed because of the fact that he suffered the way he suffered in order to get there. That's not not Paul's intent. Paul isn't seeking salvation, do you understand, in this moment. Paul is captured by a vision of Jesus. And see, the vision of Jesus doesn't doesn't ask the question, how much do I need to do to be saved? Okay? The vision of Jesus simply says, because of what he's done, I go. Because of what he's done, I respond. 
Because of what he's done, I move past, my, move past the inconvenience. Because of what he's done, I move past the discomfort. Because of what he's done, I move past the momentary suffering. Because of what he's done, I move past the persecution. Because of what he's done, I suffer well. And so saints, this is, this, is, this is, I don't know where you are. I don't know what God has called you to, all right? But here's what I do know, that there's going to be a point in your walk that this will not be easy. And that at, at, at that point, your, your natural inclination will be, well, I must not need to do it because it's hard. And what I'm telling you is that it's at that point that the Spirit is probably going to be boldly testifying to you, no, this is precisely why it's time to do it, because it's hard. And at that point, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to look past the clouds of persecution, suffering, discomfort, and inconvenience. And you're going to have to gaze into the beauty of Christ and see that he's worth it. 